Welcome to the Era of Good Feelings, dear listener. This is the Harrison Podcast, and I'm your host, Jerry Landry. This week's intro music is an excerpt from Beethoven's Piano Sonata No. 28 in A Major, performed by Daniel Vesey and shared with the public on MuseOpen.com. I thought this would be a good introduction to this episode, as it was composed in 1816, when James Monroe was elected our fifth president, and reflects some of the opulence that was synonymous with the time, as well as some of the tensions that would cause the era of good feelings to end as anything but. In our last episode, we left off with James Monroe taking office, and William Henry Harrison headed back to his family's estate, Berkeley, in Tidewater, Virginia. Since we last encountered the Harrisons still in Virginia, both of Harrison's brothers and two sisters had passed away. Berkeley was now owned by Harrison's nephew, who was briefly mentioned last episode, and who was named, get this, Benjamin Harrison. Longtime listeners will know that this name is quite popular in the Harrison family. Harrison will stay in Virginia for around three weeks and is honored along with fellow Tippecanoe veteran Senator Waller Taylor at a dinner in Petersburg, Virginia, before heading back to Pittsburgh, then taking a boat home to Cincinnati. 1817 and 1818 would prove, both for Harrison and a number of his contemporaries, to be years spent dealing with the past. As Harrison had already been forced to do due to the allegations of malfeasance and mismanagement during his tenure as commander of the army in the Northwest, so too were other prominent military figures from the War of 1812 around this time trying to answer to criticisms of their decisions and administration of military affairs during the war. General James Winchester was one of these due to a recently released publication by Robert McAfee entitled History of the Late War, while Harrison, Isaac Shelby, Commodore Perry, and others were featured prominently as heroes. McAfee had little but condemnation for Winchester, and Winchester was not going to take the criticism lying down. Harrison, meanwhile, who had suffered the indignity of having a resolution of thanks and of gold medals being proposed to honor his service and that of Isaac Shelby, which was a standard practice of the time, but which became political fodder with his detractors striking his name from the resolution, would finally get his proper due. Two years after the original resolution, Congress finally voted the honors for Harrison and Shelby with only one dissenting vote in the House and a unanimous approval in the Senate. Harrison, however, was too busy to revel in the accolades. His primary work in Congress during this time was in seeking the resolution of, quote, individual war claims for back pay and other compensation, as well as pensions for destitute veterans, widows, and orphans. He would seek assistance for associates who had helped him during his early days, including Arthur St. Clair and the widow of his former guardian, Robert Morris. During this time, he wrote a friend in Cincinnati that, quote, if you knew the number of letters I receive, you would pity me. He would prove himself to be an advocate and champion for those from the lowest ranks up to former field commanders. In a time long before standard pensions and benefits for veterans, Harrison would become a 19th century Veterans Bureau. The world was moving on past the war, though not always for the better. General Andrew Jackson, who Harrison had encountered briefly during the war, was now fighting against the Seminole Indians in the southeast. At this time, it should be remembered that Florida was not a part of the U.S. Rather, it was still owned by Spain. Andrew Jackson, however, didn't let anything like international borders stand in his way, though. No, sir. He just marched right in and caused an international incident with not one, but two nations when he executed two British traitors on Spanish soil. 
Harrison, looking at the incident from a military point of view when the matter came before Congress and resolutions of censure for Jackson, ultimately voted against censure for the execution of one of the British traitors, but far censuring Jackson for the second execution. Why, you ask, was one death condoned while the other a step too far? As Harrison argued, the court-martial which had been conducted for the two had only concluded with the sentence of hanging for one of the men. In Harrison's mind, Jackson had acted outside of the military justice system in hanging the other man. Unlike his fellow legislators, he did not see that it was for him to judge the legality of the court-martial itself. His criticism of Jackson during this time, however, would long be remembered by Old Hickory. One additional and ultimately much more consequential question came before Congress during Harrison's tenure in the House, the question of the admittance of Missouri as a state. George Dangerfield, in his book, The Era of Good Feelings, describes the setting into which the Missouri debate began as follows. Quote, in 1819, the peculiar relation between planner and factor was already well established. It was easy to see that this relation tied the planner inescapably to a one-crop system. His fortunes were forever mortgaged to the next year's crop. His agrarian society, which put its spare capital into the purchase of land and slaves, was drifting into debt and its creditor was the capitalist society which was beginning to take shape in the north. Southern politicians became more and more prominent in national affairs. Northern bankers obtained a firmer and yet firmer grip upon the southern economy. It was never a fair exchange. It grew embittered invariably over the question of tariffs, but what really poisoned it was the question of slavery. As a political man, the southerner was dignified and skillful, as an economic or an ethical man, he was irritable and insecure, and all these sides of him first expressed themselves fully in the 16th Congress when the agrarian and the capitalist worlds, emerging from the shadows, came suddenly to grips over the admission of the state of Missouri. Ned and Constance Sublette pointedly call the debate one of sectional politics when they write, quote, The prize at state was control of the Senate, which was crucial for the slaveholders. The House was coming under control of the North because in terms of population, the North was handily outpopulating the South through immigration. It had already outstripped the three-fifths constitutional advantage, and the gap was widening. The issue faced by Congress during Harrison's tenure was an amendment introduced by Representative James Talmadge of New York to the bill to admit Missouri to the Union, which would outlaw slavery in Missouri. Harrison would vote against this bill, along with one proposed by Representative John Taylor, also of New York, to prohibit settlers from bringing new slaves into the planned Arkansas Territory and to free all slaves in the territory when they reached the age of 25. Taylor also proposed the 3630 line, the southern border of Missouri, as the northern limit for slavery. Harrison then countered with the mouth of the Des Moines River as the line. Both proposals were defeated along with Taylor's bills for the Arkansas Territory and the amended Missouri Bill. Nothing more would be done on the matter in Harrison's last Congress, and the Missouri debate would continue on until 1821 when, in a compromise negotiated by Henry Clay, Missouri would be admitted as a slave state, but slavery would be prohibited, north of the 3630 line, as proposed by Taylor. Though Harrison was not a part of the final compromise, his votes against the prohibition of slavery would be brought up for question in future electoral contests in increasingly anti-slavery Ohio. Ultimately, the nation would be shaken by the debate. As noted by Dangerfield, quote, 
the alarm that the whole quarrel had aroused was justified in every particular it has been said that the missouri compromise put the question of slavery to sleep for many years but this is not true it never slept again harrison would ultimately decide after two terms to decline re-election to congress anna harrison had opted not to go to washington with harrison while congress was in session in order to take care of the children as well as family affairs in north bend and one has to wonder at the strain that this put on her as well as on the family it must be remembered that harrison's own father had been away from home for most of his childhood it does seem that harrison over the course of his life tried to maintain a close relationship with his family through correspondence when he was away and to always be aware of what was going on in their lives however unfortunately for anna harrison's time away from home would continue to grow as the years went on and he ventured further from north bend for now though harrison's attentions would be turned closer to home with his departure from congress harrison was able to be present for the weddings of two of his children in the fall of eighteen nineteen his son sims married clarissa pike the daughter of the famed explorer zebulon pike and the next day his daughter lucy married david esty a lawyer and financier from cincinnati sims who had been appointed by monroe as receiver of the vincennes land office was to venture back to the family's former home grouseland to make his way in the world harrison meanwhile could not stay out of the public service for long he was convinced to stand for election to the ohio state senate though questioned during the campaign about his position as the director of a local branch of the bank of the united states which was quite unpopular in the cincinnati area due to its actions in the recent economic slump which would come to be known as the panic of eighteen nineteen harrison was ultimately elected to the position and would make his way to columbus before long before we look at his work in the state senate i thought it might be worthwhile at this point to pause and look at harrison's position in society and in the community at this point from all accounts harrison was seen as being a leading citizen in the cincinnati area though this may sound strange to us now that harrison was named as a bank director with no previous experience in the financial industry it wasn't that unusual in the west at that time for leading citizens to be asked to lend their names to new ventures as industry was still trying to establish itself in the area as was mentioned in our episode on the jacksonian finance system episode six for those interested in going back to learn more banking at that time was built on trust there was no fdic to protect deposits a bailout like tarp would be unthinkable all that kept the system going was a common agreement to rules and trust that the banks would uphold their end of the bargain thus when panics occurred and banks acted to protect themselves against loss it was usually to the detriment of the customer thus as harrison biographer cleves wrote regarding the latest economic difficulties quote, the slumps in western fortunes added to the feeling against the bank men once considered rich and a host of small entrepreneurs had been ruined even harrison in a speech in congress had said about the bank of the united states quote, i view an institution which may be converted into an immense political engine to strengthen the arm of the general government and which may at some future day be used to oppress and break down the state governments Harrison would not be the first, nor the last, to look critically at the bank, and though they would find themselves opposed more often than aligned, Andrew Jackson would take a similar stance on the bank and make it a core component of his political ideology and agenda. Harrison would come to fight the bank in the state senate as he interjected himself in a dispute raging between the state and the Bank of the United States branch at Chillicothe, 
The state government had passed a law taxing the branch bank $50,000 to continue to operate in Ohio, and when they refused to pay, the sum was liberated from its coffers, quote, with the aid of a crowbar, and loaded onto a sheriff's wagon for deposit by the state auditor. Harrison offered a substitute to a committee report that justified the law and argued against the conclusion reached by the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of McCullough v. Maryland that states did not have the right to tax a bank chartered by Congress as the Bank of the United States was. Harrison's proposal affirmed the Supreme Court's decision as being the ultimate law of the land, but proposed that the National Bank be abolished from the state. In the next session of the state Senate, Harrison argued that, as, quote, the state was a sovereign without jurisdiction over all property within its limits. It could not be sued by an entity that it did not recognize as legally existing within its borders. It should be noted that this bit of Western constitutional law speculation is not that far off from the fundamental thought behind John C. Calhoun's later proposals of the rights of states to nullify the laws of the federal government. A modification of the original report was ultimately passed and distributed to Monroe and members of Congress, but received little support outside of Ohio, and, ironically enough, since it drew upon the Kentucky and Virginia resolves, which would later serve as the foundation for the state's rights ideology, was attacked by editors in South Carolina. However, for Harrison, it positioned him as being on the side of the little guy over the big banking interest, something that would come to help him in the future even if he didn't see immediate payoff. Harrison's tendency towards states' rights thinking ultimately rankled his fellow legislatures as the Missouri debate made its way into the Ohio State Senate. A resolution was proposed to urge, quote, our senators and representatives in Congress to use their zealous endeavors to prevent the adoption of so odious and dangerous a measure as to allow Missouri to enter the Union as a slave state. Harrison then made a motion to insert into the resolution language that the expansion of slavery should be prevented by all means, quote, which the Constitution will allow. Given the large number of state senators originally from New England, where anti-slavery sentiment had been growing ever more popular, this seemed to be a cop-out, and his fellow senators would have none of that. They voted down Harrison's motion and passed the original resolution. As stated earlier, Missouri would ultimately enter the Union as a slave state, but Harrison would suffer being passed over twice by the Ohio State Legislature in 1821 to election to the U.S. Senate. Both times, the people who ultimately were elected were originally from Connecticut. Likewise, in 1822, Harrison would face off in a bid to return to the U.S. House against his opponent for the state Senate seat, William Gasly. Gasly would attack Harrison as being pro-slavery and pro-bank. He would dust off the old attacks of earlier Harrison opponents and go after his war record. He'd say that Harrison was a tool of a corrupt system which he used to his benefit as his son Sims had been appointed to the position at the land office at Ben Sims. Any attack that could be thought of, Gasly and his supporters used, and it worked. This would be the first public election that Harrison lost, but it wouldn't be the last, not by a long shot. We'll leave Harrison in defeat for now. I feel it only fair to mention that we're currently in the midst of one of the least documented portions of Harrison's career. Harrison's time in the various legislatures does not get much attention by his biographers. In Freeman Cleve's biography, the most readily available full biography of Harrison, out of 343 pages not counting endnotes, the period from 1814 to 1828 gets 31 pages. 
One of the problems with looking at this time in Harrison's history is the fire at North Bend that destroyed an untold number of Harrison's personal papers. Harrison's time in the Army was well documented in official Army records. His upcoming diplomatic service is preserved in State Department records. His two presidential runs were preserved in other collections as he had to communicate with so many prominent folks across the nation. At this time, though, he was not as prominent of a figure. Thus, what we have preserved is a piecemeal collection that, thus far, hasn't been deemed worthy of extensive study. Ultimately, I would like to see what more we can learn about this time, and if there are resources that haven't been previously identified that can answer questions about Harrison's ideology and ambitions during this time. For now, though, we must trot along as Harrison and the nation move toward another presidential election coming up in 1824, which will in some ways set the stage for the rest of the antebellum period. The last of the founding fathers, James Monroe, was not running for re-election to a third term. Thus, the floor was open for contenders from the next generation to step up. And boy, did they step up. I hope you'll join me for our next episode, which I'm calling Corrupt Bargains and Shallow Minds, Harrison and JQA. Who is JQA, you ask? Well, he comes from a little town in Massachusetts called Quincy and shares his first and last name with his father, who had previously appeared in our narrative. Number six is coming, and seven is hot at his heels. Until then, Please feel free to share your thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns by emailing me at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or through Facebook at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. Episode notes and more information are available at our blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. You can also catch up on past episodes at the blog or through iTunes or Stitcher. As always, thank you so much for listening and take care, friends. Until next time.